Welcome everybody uh, to today's uh, masterclass um, delivered in collaboration with MediaWorks, a digital agency in Alanders for all things uh, supply chain, logistics, etc. Um, today we're going to be focusing on fueling profitable retail growth, so targeting high value retail customers. So this is the second in the series that MediaWorks and Nylanders have been being conducting together, um, and it really focuses on the role of marketing in supply chain management. I think, as we touched on, for those that haven't seen the first session, um, I would absolutely encourage everybody to do that. You can find those uh, via our website um, under the insight section, where you can go through and look at all the previous podcasts and, and masterclasses that we've done. Um, but I guess the reason for doing this, and I think it's always worthwhile saying this up front, is really around that that piece around how do different parts of business actually come together and actually make sense? I mean, we always talk about like marketing potentially in isolation, or we'll talk about supply chain, logistics, um, process operations in, in isolation. I think what's really quite unique and insightful about these sessions in particular is how we bring these areas together. So hopefully the conversations today will reflect that. Um, as I say, we're going to be talking about uh, fuel and profitable retail growth. So I'm delighted um, to have with me um, a number of, of panelists. I guess for those that don't know, I'll start myself. My name is David Norris. I'm the Performance Marketing Director here at MediaWorks, but I'll be hosting this masterclass. Rachel? Hi, everyone. So my name is Rachel McGuigan, and I'm the Head of Insights and Innovation here at MediaWorks. And then we'll go to Peter. Yes, hi, I'm Peter Hertel at Easycom. I'm the founder and CEO, so happy to join today. Thank you. And then we'll move on to finally, last but not least, David. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Yeah, I'm David Bruce. I look after the development side for the supply chain with the landers here in the UK. Fantastic. So, as I've said, we're going to focus today around, around the changes in the e-commerce landscape and consumer behaviours and the shifts that we're seeing. The biggest change by far is the way in which consumers shop today and also the way that that therefore impacts on the supply chain and, and how that uh, world impacts on, on the marketing aspect. The marketing aspect impacts on the, on the supply chain logistics side of things. So the, the growth in digital uh, commerce and online shopping means that consumers have more buying power and greater choice than ever before. That's, again, something we touched on previously, but we will be touching on again. Today, we're here to discuss why retailers who focus on their customers' journeys, needs, and expectations, and who build appropriate service models by looking across every customer touchpoint and stitching data across their business will succeed in driving lifetime value and increased profits. In this, in this session, sorry, leading solution provider Relanders will team up uh, to break down the strategies for driving recurring revenue through data-driven marketing and merchandising campaigns. So... That's enough from me. I feel like I've done a lot of talking there in the intro. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to move into, and I'm going to come to you, Rachel, first, um, around what are the key drivers? We talk about consumer behaviours and con changes in consumer behaviours, but what do we see as driving that those consumer behaviours? Yeah, definitely. And I think there's, there's no surprise that e-commerce is kind of, like online shopping, e-commerce, it's bigger than ever now. Um, and I think in the past few years, it's easier than ever to shop online. And we can see that through some of the stats. So the e-commerce market is continuing to accelerate. Um, Statista did a really nice study where they found that there's currently between 12 and 24 million online stores globally, which is um, around 
two billion buyers across the whole world. And that's it. They're saying that accounts for half under half of all internet users globally. So really that landscape of who is available to you is huge. And it's not just within the United Kingdom, it's it's on a global scale. And I think it's fair to say that the pandemic has been a fuel for this. It's broken down those barriers to e-commerce. Shops who kind of heavily relied on footfall don't really have to think about, um, you know, had to think, had to change strategically. So we kind of say turned retailers into e-tailers. And now an average consumer looks to make around 19 online purchases a year, which is a huge opportunity for businesses across the world. I think for me, one of the other things I want to throw in is really about as well, when I look at sort of consumer behaviour and how it's changed is, is, is price. And I know, you know, we can get into the whole the whole inflation debate in the UK and, and the, the, the price sensitivity of consumers. But actually what we're seeing definitely in the e-commerce space over the last 12 months is a real focus on, on not just being price sensitive. So we know that price clearly always pay, plays a role in, in the in the consumer decision making process. It, it does, you know, around, whether you're a, a premium brand or you're a discounter, price plays a role. But actually, we know that an increasing number of, of businesses and, and, and users are actually focusing on, on things outside of price. So focusing on things like, you know, I would say sort of information, service delivery, product delivery, your ability uh, to actually get that product to an individual. So we've seen that as e-commerce has grown and evolved, um, you know, from a tool of comparing prices to a tool for comparing everything about category of products, you know, we've seen that shift. If you look at things like Google Trends, we see that the worldwide growth of looking for best pair of trainers versus, for example, cheapest pair of trainers has climbed steadily. You know, we're seeing that across a range of channels based on the latest data we're seeing from Google. We also know that for, you know, even when the end of the purchase journey might be offline and we've got that hybrid model and that hybrid purchase paths, what we do know is, is that for still the vast majority of consumers now, that start of that consumer journey starts online. So we know that shoppers aren't just there looking for price. We know that they're looking for things like delivery. We know that things like, you know, have the friends um, reviewed those products before? Are they talking about them on social media? Um, what are review sites saying about a particular product or service, et cetera? Like, what are aggregators saying? Uh, how many times has that product been liked? How many times has that product been sold? You know, we're seeing all of those play a massive role in building consumer confidence. You know, I was reading something the other day by a statistic that said 70% of consumers read between one and six reviews before making an online purchase. So we know that sort of informational grazing, as we know it, versus transactional drivers, so things like short product specs, power of now, delivery time, scarcity bias, etc. like the balance has definitely shifted over a period of time. It's not just about get me the best, get me the, the product that I want for the cheapest price. Like we're seeing now, a lot of our um, clients are competing on the next day delivery, on the quality of the delivery service. I mean, I was thinking the other day, my wife's even got a favourite delivery company now because she knows that this particular delivery company will leave something behind the gate versus this delivery company won't deliver and, and they'll end up having to take it back. So she's even factoring that into the purchase decision-making process. Um, and then, as you say, we know that we're seeing that balance between the cost 
um, you know, the product and the risk of return costs against strength of proposition and, and how you acquire unique products from international markets. Mm. And I think that's a great point there, talking about international markets. You'll notice so far, we haven't really just focused on the UK. We've kept emphasising globally. And I think that's because um, people who kind of make online purchases now feel much more savvy. They're much more willing to look outside of their traditional, like, you know, traditionally, if it wasn't in the UK, we probably wouldn't have stretched the purchaser online. And I think that shift in behaviours of people willing to purchase across the border is growing double the rate of kind of traditional domestic um, e-commerce. So again, some of that, some more interesting stats just around this. Um, kind of WorldPay did a study where they um, found that people sit like people who were seeking a specific brand or specific type of product they wanted to get their hand on. Um, it would depend on how competitive the pricing was. And they found that 55% of their online shoppers have purchased from another country in the last 12 months. So actually, it's becoming more and more common now than ever before that people are happy to buy from a different country. That's really helping fuel what the change in behavior online. I think we can also say that um, companies are doing a lot more now to be accessible worldwide and to help remove any of those international barriers so again whether it is that they look at delivery costs whether they look at the things that they offer whether it's just the experience on the website in terms of the content the measurements um the the costing and um including fees and kind of including that on top of that websites are going above and beyond now to deliver that service to make sure that they can cast a global net rather than just being kind of in that domestic country themselves. Um, and I definitely think that we see shipping costs as being something that's quite important, like the shipping costs, the, the time to deliver is really the, those key important things for encouraging users to be to feel more comfortable kind of purchasing from another country too. So there's kind of a lot to go on there in terms of globally how this is fueling um, e-commerce behavior and how it's changing the way users shop online. Yeah, and I think for me, like when we talk about this and you think about, you know, a question that we often get asked is how then can can retailers really differentiate themselves? And I think for me, like they, they come under particular categories. I think the power of now, so, for example, people don't want to wait for products anymore. People are wanting that almost instant sort of delivery. And I think sort of, you know, people want that the week of the proposition comes. So if you haven't got something that stands out and is unique and is different in the space, people expect that you're going to compete on how quickly can I get that. That's a massive factor. And then I think the power of free. Now, I don't want the retailers that are listening to fall off the chair at that and say, right, we should just go free on everything. But I do think what we've seen is not about going free giveaways, et cetera, but it definitely is, is things like free returns. You know, we're seeing, again, increasing um, interest in that, that element. Like, you know, if, if something doesn't fit, then can I get that back for free or am I going to have to pay for that versus, you know, somebody else who might offer that? And I think the other one I'd just like to finish on before moving on is that 60% of all, all online shopping carts are abandoned, which is absolutely staggering. Um, with 49% of consumers say this is a result of high extra costs at checkout. So they don't like sort of non-transparent costing. I think that's a major thing because 
as I say, it's not a like-for-like -like comparison then that they're seeing. And ultimately, with the optionality and how comfortable people are in the online space now, it's likely going to lead um, consumers who are already quite way down that consumer purchase journey to abandon and go somewhere else. So I guess coming into that then, I've got a further question, which is, why are forward-thinking retailers starting to analyse return data to help evaluate the true cost of returns? Because we've just talked about, you know, the, the power of free and people expecting sort of free delivery and, and what their expectations are around that. So, you know, you've surely got to factor that in if you're a retailer now. Yeah, definitely. I think we've talked on that, how important it is kind of companies have USPs and I think for a really long time free delivery free returns hassle free has been that kind of key selling point across all websites but actually a lot of studies are being done into this area and some of the stats that are coming out of it are scarier than ever I guess and I guess that's why now it's more important than ever to start understanding look that sort of return process and what it looks like I think um We'll touch on in a few points later, we'll kind of touch on what that actually means for you as a business. But just to reiterate kind of why understanding returns data is really important, we pulled out some key stats around this. So um, the Sunday Times reported in a study that um, offering free returns is costing UK retailers around £7 billion. It's a substantial amount because it's the cost of you getting that item back it depends what you can do with it afterwards and, you know, is it something that you can resell, et cetera, et cetera. How much money are you losing as a business for offering free returns? We've noticed that most of our clients are concerned about the volume of returns and actually some people are tested removing that USP to see what that does to their business and does that affect the kind of volume of sales that they're getting because they know they're free shipping is impacting them, the returns and their margin that they're getting back on their products. Some other interesting things to note that in terms of when we go into the fashion space, one in three fashion items that are bought online are sent back. Um, this is double the rate of shop-bought goods. Obviously, I guess because you can try products on, you don't have to go home without them. But a lot of the time, people sometimes just put, fill a basket to get free shipping. And then they're willing to send it back because they know it's easy or free returns. It's not inconvenient for them as a user at all. Other, again, in the fashion space, in the shopper space, we also see that one in 10 shoppers admit to buying clothes purely to take photographs of themselves. So Barclay Card actually found that um, there was a trend where people and like influencers would order a lot of clothes, produce content off the back of it and then send it all back. But a lot of the time, retailers can't do anything with that. So it was quite damaging to the brand. And I actually think um, ASOS had came out and spoke about it and said, you know, if we think that you're abusing our returns policy or you are kind of wearing those clothes, we will um, ban your account because they've obviously recognised the impact that that's having to them as a business. There was also, um, every time a parcel is returned, it costs an average of £20 for the business because that has to include things like shipping, storage, repackaging, whether you can discount it because it's, you know, being used or it's secondhand or whatever it might be. So it's not just the cost of returning, but it's then how much it costs them, you know, how difficult is it for them to reshift that product afterwards? Um, and then also there's a few examples of 
um, businesses now actually reintroducing shipping charges to try and discourage that kind of behaviour. So, for instance, Wayfair is now charging £10 for a small service um, and up to £50 for a large service. You've got clothing retailers such as Hollister um, and Next who are charging per return as well. Um, so they're hoping to try and cut out that behaviour, but the studies seem to fail to cover what that actually is doing to their initial conversions and if that's becoming a friction point for new and existing customers to their website. So there's quite, so far, the data is quite heavily showing the impact of offering free returns, but there's not maybe enough studies yet just to show you know, I'm not saying go out and make that change your USPs right now to that because there's not enough data right now to say, okay, well, what is the business impact of doing so? Yeah, and I guess that sort of leads me nicely into speaking to Peter about this really is is sort of, you know, we talk often about, about profitability, but I think when we focus on profitability, we sort of have that conversation at a sort of a marketing level in terms of market spend. So what are the, what are the other costs that, that people need to be considering in this space? Yeah, so I think the, the as Rachel said that that uh, free returns and then the behavior that brings to the table is is costly and it affects the margins for, for retail companies. So, and and historically there only been two levers: either you charge for for freight and returns, or you have free freight and returns. So so nothing in between. And um, what you need to start doing now is to actually connect your sales data with your return data to get this new type of what we call true profitability. Meaning that you you can see exactly the the profitability down on consumer level and product level, and when connecting those dots, you actually connect your whole business. It's knowing that the the impact of your return rates and and products coming back, and also the consumer behavior, what impact it actually has on on your profits. So, as Rachel mentioned, also is that if you take care of the the cost, you know most often the the cost for for marketing and, and the sales for for outbound and also delivery. Adding also the, the cost for returns when it comes to the, the transportation cost, handling cost, and, and uh, yeah, warehousing cost and everything you need to take care of in the, in the post-purchase process. If you connect those dots, then you get the profitability down on consumer and product level. And that actually opens up new opportunities. Instead of having these two big levers, free shipping uh, for all or free returns for all, or charging all, is that you can start to use services based on profitability on consumer level, which means that all your profitable consumers will get free shipping and free returns. And also good services like express changes and instant refunding in the return process. Whilst the ones that are a bit misbehaving, they, they need education, but also some in some cases banning or blocked uh, from, from selling. In that sense, you are more customized in, in how you sell, you sell and sell and market your products because you know the profitability down on product level also, and then to which consumer and target groups are you giving these nice opportunities. So I think that is the, the view you need to take for, for. Yeah, I think I think you know hearing what you say there, Peter, it's really interesting because I think it's fair to say that with a, a number of our clients sort of especially sort of the, the more larger, more sophisticated, where they are harnessing the power of data, what we are, what we are seeing is, is they are even down to a product level talking about the return on investment that they have to see and then we can't drop below that and they sit like individual product 
sort of level KPIs that that do change as well, dependent on things like seasonality, etc. So I guess leads us nicely onto the question then: How are businesses and brands harnessing data to create personalised customer experience and hyper-targeted marketing strategies? Yeah, I, I will start with this one if that's all right. I think it's I think we've all been guilty in the past of trying to look at one single data set when we've been trying to achieve something as a like for a business or you know if we're trying to get to the bottom of something but actually more than ever now brands are actually beginning to explore kind of stitching multiple data sources together to be able, be able to understand their customers more so you know we kind of touched on it in a few of the previous points but um that's why looking at your sales data and your returns data is really important because each one tells a slightly different picture, but when you put them together, it's so much more powerful, the decisions that you can make as a business. So we always think about combining, even if you just combine different um, first-party data sources, so stuff that you already own together, which might be things like your sales data, your returns data, it might be things like your um, the customer's purchase history, um, or you might want to use your web analytics platform to understand how you acquired the customers, you then begin to have the ability to segment those customers in the way that Peter talked about. So you'll be able to identify segments and groups of users and split those out between how profitable they are, where they are in their purchasing life cycle, where they are in terms of lifetime value for you as a business. Um, And you can then make a lot of decisions based on that. That allows you to use your budgets more effectively because how do you communicate to these different groups it's a lot more tailored than ever before to do that though there's a lot that goes into it it's not just as easy as going okay i'm going to look at these two data sets and you know i've got all of the answers i think you need to understand what data sources are going to get you there and then how you're going to measure success because if you don't know what you're benchmarking against if you don't know what that true measurement should be it's impossible to to almost know which direction it's going and to understand whether you've moved the dials in the right ways. So we kind of always like, sometimes the first metric that comes to mind isn't always going to be the correct metric. So like, if you want to grow as a business, traditionally, you might go to a company and then they might achieve revenue. Like they might go, right, okay, well, I'm going to hit a million pounds worth of revenue. That's my goal. And a, a company might say, yep, absolutely, I can get you there. But if 900,000 of that products get returned, it doesn't matter that your, your sales figures hit a million. Probably not because that's not suitable as a business. So understanding first what that metric or measure should be is really, really important. And then trying to get the right data sources together. And, you know, it's going to take some time to transform it and, and kind of merge the two together to help answer that challenge. And I think initially kind of from an outside perspective in the data world that is really where we say you get some key information that allows you to understand your customers in some way shape or form but then off the back of it because you've created those silos those audience splits you can then use digital channels to or even eat like things like email marketing paid advertisement you can use that to be really targeted in the messaging and the marketing strategies that you want to get across. So there's a lot of power there. Green, Peter, have you got any um, sort of views that you'd like to offer on this area? Yeah, so, so adding to what Rachel said is that if you have more 
profitability data down on consumer level, of course, it's much easier to select your target groups for, for, for marketing campaigns and, and, and good offerings. And so once album we did an analysis on, on profitability for a UK retailer, and we actually found uh, a bunch of uh, a target group or, or a group of customers that were actually placing between two and 12 orders a year, returning 100% of the items at a cost of 2.6 million UK or pounds. And that is just in the operational cost, which means that you can pretty quickly identify the, the, the ones that are misusing the system. And if you block those, you have a direct impact on margins. But also when, when doing marketing and campaign, instead of doing this widespread marketing, you can have more specific target groups based on adding the profitability field into your CRM and your 360 view of the customer, which means that it will target your most profitable customers to even increase the, the rate of orders and so forth. And that will give you more profitable sales and marketing in that sense. And also, if you start to use the top and bottom list of your products when it comes to profitability, so knowing your, your bottom list of, of products that are actually just driving cost and not doing any campaigns on those will actually increase your margin. So being, being passive for, for those products will actually drive margin up. And if you focus on the, the top 100 of your products that are most profitable, that has also direct impact on increasing margin and profits that the, the, in, in, the, in the existing year or so. So it's a different view when you get that data. So you can actually give good customers better services. You can soft block and, and hard block uh, non-profitable customers, but also using the, the profitability data on, on products will give you totally new views on, on the, the impact you can make for, for the company. It's not quite the, the Pareto principle we're talking about here, is it, in terms of 80-20? It's not as crude as that, but it almost is. It's the, the underlying idea that, you know, the significant amounts of profits that you'll see as a business come from a, uh, normally a very small audience or a, a small product range. I think yeah. for us, it's how we understand that and how we therefore target people. But I guess, question on the flip side of that then, you know, when can retailers manage obsolete stock process by boosting visibility of available products in the return process? Like, what's our what's our process for that, Peter? So you have short, medium, and long term. But looking at the short term is that if you know, we can already tell the first sales week which items will have high high return rate, high claims rate, and like where you have issues. So you can address those issues pretty quickly in order to avoid coming returns and unsatisfied customers. So with data and using the data proactively, it will help you to, to find those deviations quickly in the, in the product lifecycle. So that's the direct impact. And also, if it's quality related issues, you probably should stop selling those and fix the, the quality issues before pumping out more items into the market. So that will actually help you with the, um, having the better quality on your current stock. But also in, in the medium range is that when you have a digital returns platform in place with some business logic is that you have better view on what's your actual stock on road or on route from, from customers. And that you can all, already start to use as an available stock and start selling the return stock in your web shop and all driving more sales while filling like product and size gaps in, the, in, in your web shop. So that is like using the return stock in a new way will actually increase your availability in, 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 a, in mid range and a mid view, and that will increase sales. 
in the long run means that when you start get these processes in place, that will help also the purchase department knowing that if I'm out of stock in the warehouse for, for a product, but we will get 1,000 uh, pieces in uh, in the beginning of next week. Don't put a repeat purchase order to the supplier because that will just create overstock and dead stock and, and, and have a sustainability impact that is not that good. So this also not, not giving just the, the direct impact, but it also have effect on sustainability and the long term of, of like overproduction and, and uh, of course the planet, so to say. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like, David, now, now I'm really conscious of, oh, no. let's get Elander's views on this. I'm really <laughs> interested to hear what David's got to say about this. I'll just, just go out on the back of Peter, from a physical supply chain point of view, um, it's about having the visibility of what is coming. So what has been agreed to be uplifted? Where is it? So it's getting the transparency. Um, if the physical supply chain has got that visibility, then it allows the business, the retailer, to do what Peter just described. So if you've got good customers who return, and when they do return historically, what they say is wrong with it, is wrong with it, et cetera, you can almost resell it before it's actually returned back into the processing center. So you start to get your, uh, your inventory working better and quicker. Um, but it does come around to about trust. So equally, the responsibility of the physical supply chain is when we get returns back in, we are actually checking off to the right criteria as this product has been returned, why is it? So there's a screening mm -hmm. and making sure that um, if the product is to go back into stock, it is deemed suitable without having the nested all the technical knowledges. Some of that is new to some retailers because historically, if it's just gone back, it's just gone back straight into stock and then it goes back out again three months later and at a lower price and or a lower quality. So the visibility is really important. Um, along with the trust piece, then I would say it's around then technology. We're in a modern era. We're all sitting on uh, digital platforms now doing this event. Um, the use of technology, the use of data in the supply chain and how it's pulled together is an enabler to making these decisions, both from a physical warehouse operations, returns processing point of view, but also feeding back then into what I call the retailers head office decisions and the marketing teams as what's really come back, what's really going on. So you get that, what I call an ecosystem being built up. Um, because without that, you're only as good as your weakest link. And that could be the physical supply chain. It could be procurement, as Peter just described. It could be that we've got the wrong marketing campaign. And, and until someone pulls it together and sees it as one, that's, you know, you're never going to really get the most from it. So the physical piece is really more about supporting what I call the front end, the retailer, but feeding back in and being physically involved in those decisions. Historically, that hasn't always happened in many retailers because the head office versus the warehouse on returns has been quite a big disconnect. So, so yeah, there is a big opportunity to do something different especially now with that technology and the visibility. Yeah, so I think I think everything that we've talked about up here then leads me into this final question, really, around, around that fascinating piece of joining up the front end and making sure the back end's but really it's about understanding who are our most profitable customers and, and therefore how we can, can target those individuals, how we can make sure we've got the return policy right around those. So final formal question, if you like, to you, David, would be how can retailers approach returning profitable customers by implementing an effective outbound and return logistics process? Um, 
yeah, quite a, a good question at the end. Um, I think for me, it's around um, from a supply chain point of view, you're in the warehouse. We get an order, we get something to pick, to send out, or it's returned. Do we know the type of customer that is? So on the classification that Peter mentioned, that Rachel mentioned, is that actually clear to the warehouse? It wouldn't necessarily make us do something different, but if there's a prioritization, if there's a, we've got a guarantee to get these orders out, or we've only got 100 capacity, which 100? You make sure you serve your best customers first. Um, so you start to prioritize them and making sure that those customer states, it is known rather than just it's an order number and it's some SKUs to pick and dispatch or to process in. I think the other things that start to then come on the back of that is once you know the customer, the solution that you actually physically design, you physically build, um, one size does not fit all. So that is as much for the outbound which I think a lot of retailers are pretty good at in this day and age because we've been going at it for quite a bit from a physical supply chain. But the inbound, the return, actually is a bit uh, sporadic in terms of the um, how effective and how realistic it is. And is it keeping pace with, let's call it a technology piece I mentioned earlier on? So that one size does not fit all. I think as well as a supply chain, we need to be quite uh, to true and transparent to customers because, I mean, we're all we're all buyers ourselves, and then here we are sitting in businesses trying to make those good strategic decisions. So you know, uh, we we have to sort of wear two hats, but actually we're the same individual. And if we don't believe something that we're getting on information on our app or on an email, or it doesn't um, come true, then we don't trust that business as much um and i think when you look at the outbound it's pretty good because you order something and you get the notification it's been picked it's been dispatched it's with the courier it's been left at your front door here's a photograph or it's been left in your safe place that's not bad actually in the uk but the question i've got is what's the reverse logistics like so getting the return back so where do i leave it if i'm not in how do i know it's been picked up where has it got back to the hub has it been processed? And that's a bit of a gamble for a lot of consumers as to do I trust that this is going to happen and it's going to be processed? And when you get peak periods like Christmas and the January returns, it's even worse. Will I get my money back? Because that's fundamentally what a lot of these returns could be. Um, so I think the poor returns process can actually trigger people to switch brands. And historically, I think supply chains and return supply chains haven't been that well so thought through. And that's before you look at things like the circular economy about, well, actually, if it, can you recycle it? Can you repurpose it, reuse it? So all this starts to sort of blend in together. The other thing that starts to come to mind about the, the physical supply chain to support the profitable growth is you have to be responsive and agile as a physical supply chain or a warehousing transportation sort of function. Um, you have to think differently now about physically and ge geographically where you put your warehouses. So, and this is before, I'm not going to talk about Brexit, but where do you put it geographically uh, to support your customer, to give the response times that you need, um, to give the uptime and availability for the products and the inventory that Peter talked about. It's not just about cost, which goes back to David, to your very first point at the beginning of this event. Um, but there's also things like soft skills. So if you're doing um, fashion retailing and returns processing, suddenly all that first line screen that was, say, three years ago done in store when people took product back to see, is it OK? It's now been done in a warehouse. 
And have you got the local skill set in that population where you're going to employ people? Have they got the skills? Can you train them? So suddenly that's something on an agenda, which wasn't there in my experience, you know, even two years ago, say. The same with the carriers. We've seen an awful lot of new innovative carriers come into the market. One size doesn't fit all. Um, where consumers on their outbound will, will pay more for a particular type of service. And that could be it's delivered before 10 a.m. But equally, it could be it's environmentally friendly, it's sustainable. It comes on an electric scooter bike because I live in a city centre. And, and I am happy to pay more for that as long as it comes. So the, the word predictability is really important on the physical outbound and on the return. Um, how the communication happens between, let's call it the retailer, the carrier, and then me as the end consumer, both in, a, in and out. Um, and I think the final sort of thought really putting this all together is um, what does a best practice look like or what's it beginning to look like? And I think we've, we've all touched on it in the course of this, uh, this conversation. But to me, it's about that integrated platform, the integrated offer, where in my experience as a supply chain professional, you could see retailers over the last, say, 20 plus years of work each function has optimized itself. So marketing, procurement, uh, store ops, supply chain, and they've all done their good uh, functional optimization, which is great. This is now about a process synchronization of all those functions, all seen as one. And you're only as good to point as the weakest link. And whatever that weakest link is, that will dictate your success. And that's something which I think, to Peter's point earlier on, the returns um, arena and the returns processing, returns supply chain, all the data to make better informed decisions about procurement. And that's, that is probably the new battleground for many retailers, I think, to really start thinking and start to question, are we doing the right thing today? Because what was right two years ago, certainly after what we've all been through, isn't right now. So the, the supply chain it has a real role to play to bolt what I call the marketing, the front end, the retailing together with the physical supply chain activity at the back to make that customer experience what hopefully will repeat, lead to repeat business and profitable business. You know, David, I, I normally come in now with sort of five key takeaways, but I'm, I'm not going to lie. I think that summary that you've just provided there is, is really sort of summarises everything really effectively around, you know, there is a wealth of data out there but it's about stitching all of this together to create something that actually sort of means something to the customer and is something that the customer will value. And that's around, you know, you're talking about the return space being being the new battleground. We're talking about, you know, the, the past year, the focus has been sort of a high street, but is it anymore? I mean, like you, you highlighted, I think, or I highlighted at the beginning after something that was mentioned was around sort of, you know, my wife loves a particular logistics company and will definitely spend more if she knows it's coming from that platform because she loves the communication. She loves the fact that they're going to message her before it arrives. They know the fact that if it doesn't, you know, and they're going to arrive at the house, they're going to give her a call and take a picture. And, you know, she's willing to pay for that. I think, look, what we've highlighted today, and I'm not going to go into five key points, is that returns is a massive issue in the UK retail space. We know that £7 billion, Rachel tells us, in terms of a study that we've seen. We know that, that retailers have to differentiate themselves and price isn't necessarily going to be the space that they can differentiate themselves on. So I think for us, it's about like technology and the way that we integrate 
um, sort of what we do across the supply chain can be that differential. Return space can be that differential. And for me, like understanding that that the, the data around um, you know returns to understand true profitability that then can drive your market activity at the front end and be joined up can definitely be one of the things that gives you a competitive advantage in a space that, despite us talking about a number of sophisticated elements here, we still see a lot of retailers aren't really utilising effectively. So from my perspective, you know, if there's anything to come out of today, it's to start thinking about these things. And if you are thinking about them, be thinking how much further you can push it, because I do think it's going to be the, the new battleground and the source of competitive advantage. Um, people are willing to pay that a bit more to get that high quality. And it's not just high quality product. It might be high quality delivery of product. And I think that for me is sort of the key takeaway. So, yeah, I normally do five. I'm not doing five because David led me on so nicely. But I think from my perspective, hopefully that's given lots of people food for thought. I have to say I found that really interesting, um, sort of considering different elements and how they fit together and hopefully other people do so thank you very much thanks to all of the panelists for their contribution um honestly it's been a really fascinating conversation there and we look forward to seeing you at a future uh, podcast in the coming week so thank you very much for your time and effort and enjoy the rest of your day thank you everyone <laughs>